Believing that a democracy is strongest and most effective when its citizens are adequately informed, we continue our coverage of local politics and the Democratic primary. For our second episode, we sit down with Democratic candidate for District 10 of the Kansas House of Representatives, Brandon Holland. In discussing his candidacy, we focus on the values, experiences, and policy positions he would take with him to Topeka. The Lawrence Talks podcast is produced in part thanks to our partners at the Hall Center for the Humanities, IDRH, School of Liberal Arts and Sciences, and the KU Philosophy Department. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and online at lawrencetalks.org. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Lawrence Talks, a podcast dedicated to exploring local events and introducing philosophical and humanities topics to the general public. I am your host, David Tamez. We are back in the Post House recording studios in Kansas City, Missouri. Whether you are a for-profit or non-profit company, the Post House and its affiliated partner, Primary Color Music, do wonderful work in pre- and post-production aspects of radio and TV advertisements. You can read more about their services at thepost.house and primarycolormusic.com, respectively. Today, we continue our coverage of state and local elections. I would like to welcome, via Zoom, Democratic candidate for District 10 of the Kansas House of Representatives, Brandon Holland. Brandon, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, dude. I imagine it's rather difficult for you to get around and meet people and, and give them a sense about of who you are. Uh, so I'd like to begin our discussion with, with a discussion about who you are as a person and the sort of experiences that you would bring to the job of representing District 10. All right. Well, I was born in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, but I uh, moved here when I was four uh, with my family. I am a product of the Lawrence Public School System. Uh, I went to Prairie Park in kindergarten the first year that it was open. Then I went to the Old South uh, before it was rebuilt and became Billy Mills. And then I went to Lawrence High. And then I went to KU and eventually got my degree in uh, political science with a minor in global and international studies. I studied the Middle East in college because I thought it was just kind of fascinating, the history of the interactions between, you know, East and West, you know, over the centuries. And I studied Arabic. I actually spent a summer abroad in Morocco, and that was super awesome. I had a lot of fun doing that. I've been involved with politics for a long time. My dad is State Senator Tom Holland. And so ever since his first campaign, you know, I've been working to get Democrats elected pretty much every single campaign cycle. Uh, I've been a devout Democrat since before I was even registered to vote. Uh, growing up in school, I uh, played sports, especially in junior high and high school. I was never uh, you know, quick or fast or coordinated, so I always had to play the, the big guy positions, even though I'm definitely not a big guy. But I think that taught me how to be resilient and be patient especially in football, you know, just having dudes who are, you know, 100 pounds heavier than you and you're supposed to block them. It teaches you something about, you know, what you're capable of and what you're willing to push yourself through. And then so I played uh, rugby with a local uh, Kansas Jayhawk Rugby Football Club uh, here in Lawrence, both in high school and in college. And in college is when, you know, my story took a pretty dark turn for a while. I received... Uh, numerous repeated concussions and this was this happened to me like pretty much right before the story came out in the uh from the nfl about cte 
So really wasn't aware of what was going on for quite a while. But, you know, with all the concussions I had, I had brain damage. And this led me to struggle with mental health for years. And I eventually found a doctor uh, who specialized in brain trauma patients. And over the course of about five years, uh, I worked with him starting for a while was twice a week doing what's called neurofeedback training. And I was basically rewiring my brain. Certain parts of my brain were you know, compensating for the damaged parts and I was throwing them off as well. So I had to rewire my brain to get back to functioning as close as possible. I got my life back after that, but the problem was that insurance didn't cover this and it was tens of thousands of dollars over the years. And, you know, as a wage earner, as a, you know, just a working guy, there is no way I could afford that. But luckily for me, you know, I'm, my family is fortunate and privileged and they were able to, you know, pay for the treatment that I needed. But, you know, I know that's not the case for so many people in this state. And I think that's just really cruel and inhumane. You know, what I went through over the years, I want to help other people who, uh, you know, are struggling with the same thing and mental health in general. I think there's still um, social stigma against mental health and our mental health issues, mental illness, even though we have made progress. You know, at least on a state level, we don't treat mental illness the same way we treat physical ailments, you know, diseases. And I think that has to change. I saw firsthand what a you know a physical injury or mental illness could do to a, a working person's livelihood, because I had both. <laughs> physical injuries lead to mental illness, and I want to I want to help people who you know have felt that way because I've been there, and I view this as you know the best way to you know hopefully help the most amount of people as I can. Because deep down, I I care about people. And I believe in fairness and helping people, you know, be able to achieve, you know, high levels. I think it was my sister-in-law who said, well, Brandon, we love you because we know you have a big heart. I'm kind of a softy when it comes to animals. I've adopted a lot of dogs over the years, including uh, Pitbull, who had some social issues. But as soon as he came out to my house in the country, he was the, the sweetest dog ever. I loved him to death. And fortunately, he passed uh, last winter from cancer, but he was there for me the, the whole time I was really struggling, and he was a good boy. Yeah, so I, I care. I shudder at the thought of suffering you know, from anyone. And while you may have addressed this uh, slightly in, your, in the response you just gave, I'd like to tease this out a little bit more and, and get your sense of what are the sort of things that you've noticed going on in your district that have ignited your passion and your drive uh, and your decision to run for office? Well, I think a specific instance would be uh, Christy L. Bennett. Um, this was a 28-year-old woman had been struggling for quite a while with uh, mental illness and had been self-medicating. She had been uh, approved by her insurance company to go to an inp inpatient treatment facility uh, that was out of state and she knew she needed it. So she was ready to go. She got approval on Friday, but then on Monday, or the, the clinic says, hey, your insurance just said they're not gonna cover this. And it turned out that uh, you know, she didn't meet you know, certain requirements, uh, namely that like she hadn't attempted suicide so they were saying that she wasn't suicidal. Um, so what she did was she 
she overdosed on her antidepressants on Wellbutrin in order to, you know, say, look, I tried to kill myself. Please get me this treatment. And unfortunately, she overdosed and died. And her family says that that's not what she intended at all. But unfortunately, that's what happened. And she was just trying to get, you know, coverage for the treatment she needed. And that's, that's, it's just, it's heartbreaking to hear about, you know, identifying with that pain. And then speaking with her father, uh, it it just really, really hit close to home for me. And really the fact that that can happen anywhere, that, that is a problem that is not, that's a problem that's not limited to just Douglas County. That's, that's the whole state. And on top of that, you know, growing up in Lawrence uh, and going to a new school, you know, I grew up with Prairie Park. The school was being built around me as I was going there. And I remember thinking from, you know, even early age, like, God, my class size is huge. I had 27 people. I had 27 kids in my kindergarten class. And in sixth grade, I had 30 kids in my class. And, you know, that was all just a direct result of budget cuts over the years. You know, there just weren't enough teachers. And so I felt like the teachers couldn't give the students the attention that they needed. And we all got shortchanged a little bit. And I don't want that to happen uh, to future generations, especially after uh, the GAN decision where we have to fund our schools adequately. I don't want to go back on that, especially you know, in light of COVID, states facing, I think, a $1.37 billion uh, budget shortfall uh, going through June or July of 2021. And I know in, you know, when times are tough, uh, you know, working people and people who are most vulnerable are often, you know, the first to suffer cuts. Um, Social safety net is always the first thing to get whittled down in times of budgetary crisis, especially in this state. You know, we saw Brownback's, you know, policies and yeah, that didn't work out so hot for, you know, workers. And personally for me too, you know, because of my pre-existing conditions, I was really worried about health insurance, but, you know, Obamacare has worked out great for me. But I know that there is a big donut, you know, in income to where if you qualified for Medicaid or, you know, Obamacare, but you have that uh, middle in-between spot, which I think needs to be addressed. And then with the racial justice issues too, I feel that our state, I feel like our you know Republican leadership in the state legislature has not helped the situation. I'm proud of the Lawrence community for you know stepping up on that. I was in the the Massachusetts Street March, I think the, the week after George Floyd. And you know, I want to look out for anybody who's ever felt forgotten left out, uh, negatively targeted by the government and, you know, other outside forces, just, you know, the systemic problems we have with racism and, you know, the huge wealth disparity that's growing in this country. And this just goes back to me caring about people. I'm glad you brought up the local sort of discussion that has been ongoing regarding the support for mental health initiatives and policies that, uh, put money towards those services and maybe less towards the police and and incarceration. How much of that issue have you kept up with? And what is something that you can do as as a representative to, um, I guess, impact that discussion? Well, I'd say that the number one way or the, the first and most immediate thing that we can do to address inequality 
is to expand Medicaid and enact true mental health parity because I think that's the most immediate thing we can do to level the playing field. And by that, I mean, give everybody a chance. I mean, when people say you know, defund the police, I think that's terrible wording, especially, you know, from a political standpoint. But we ask our police to do too much. You know, they aren't social welfare workers. They aren't, you know, emergency psychologists, you know, me mental health experts. And we should stop expecting them to be. You know, we need to set our police up for success by, you know, letting them focus on what, you know, what they're trained to do, what they're focused on, not, re not respond to mental health crises or anything, because we've seen, you know, the racial disparity in interactions with police officers when, you know, say a white man is having a mental crisis in public versus, you know, a man of color, the minority is much more likely to end up being executed. I think uh, AJ Stevens, one of my opponents said that really well, is that, you know, they are much more likely to just be executed. Um, by the police. I think that, you know, money has to be going to mental health programs, you know, community health centers like Burt Nash, you know, places that are designed to help the neediest people. So we have to increase funding for those so that they can attract, you know, well-qualified workers. But really, yeah, what it comes down to for me is that healthcare and mental health care is the one equalizer that we can put into effect today. You know, racism is systemic throughout, you know, most of our, you know, all of our institutions. But I think with healthcare, it'd be the first place to start because it, at the very least, people can compete if they're healthy. Every politician takes to their job a certain idea of what justice means, in part because they make decisions based on what they believe is the right thing to do. Uh, so I wanted to get your position on that. What what justice is in it, as much of a nutshell as you can put it in, because it's not always easy. And generally, what, is, what so what does it look like, and how do you know that you've made the, the right decision? To oversimplify it, I think justice is fairness. And by that, I mean people getting what they deserve. And that has both negative, you know, and positive meanings. Justice means, you know, if you commit a crime, you know, you receive an appropriate punishment. But it also means that if you work hard in this country, you will get ahead and reap the benefits of your hard work. So justice, you know, doesn't just mean law enforcement. It means how society is treating its people. I think life isn't fair, but it doesn't have to be unfair. And I think that's where the government can step in to help people overcome those those barriers that have been placed that have been in place forever. So you know they can you know, have an equal chance of competing in you know the, the marketplace. It, you know we are a capitalist country and we take great pride in our markets. You know they don't work if not everybody can you know participate the same level. Justice means not discriminating against anybody. You know, we can follow the golden rule. You know, it comes down to that too. Like I, when it comes to, you know, racial injustice, like I wouldn't want to be terrified of the police. I wouldn't want to fear any interaction with them because the color of my skin. That sounds horrible to me. Like why should that happen to anyone? Justice to me also means a lack, you know, the absence of suffering. It's not right. It's not fair to have some people 
you know, work their butts off their whole lives. Justice, I would say, is just fairness in the moral and ethical sense. And if I feel that, you know, if I feel that something targets a certain people unfairly, that is unjust and I will not support it. Justice to me is just a matter of straight up fairness, you know, facing systemic racism and discrimination and marginalization. That's not fair. That is not just. At the same time, giving massive tax breaks to the wealthiest individuals in the, in the state and saying, oh, well, you guys can grow the economy. You know, saying that that money is going to trickle down, but it never does. That's unjust because really well-off people often, you know, their businesses require infrastructure. And so not, you know, not having them pay their fair share of taxes, that's unjust because then other people are suffering. Other people who have less have to pay more, you know, to get those same services. One way of looking at your representation of your community is that you're representing the values that they hold. What do you think or what do you take to be the values you'll be representing and how do your proposed policies reflect those values? Well, I think the 10th district, um, first and foremost, values hard work. And there are a lot of really hardworking people in my district and it covers a you know fairly broad area. We have a lot of rural areas, we have a lot of farmers, a lot of a lot of wage earners such as myself, people who are counting on every single hour of work, you know, to you know, make ends meet. I think we definitely are compassionate. And I think a good example of that would be the horrible instance or incident at Haskell when the, the, the teepee was burned down. I was like, wow, I didn't think that would actually happen here. That's that's really messed up. And I was, at the time, I was really disappointed in the community. But then donations, you know, to replace it exceeded by vast amounts what they were asking for. And I was like, yeah, that's right. We are, we are a compassionate community. We aren't, we aren't a group of people who, you know, just ignore incidents like this. And, you know, we, we come together to write them. That's something I'm very proud of. Education is really important in our community as well. I think a big part of that is because of, you know, a lot of the you know, non-professional class workers, you know, the, the laborers, the blue collar guys, just, you know, everyday workers, you know, they want their kids to get ahead. And so we have to have good schools for that. And, you know, we adequately funding schools has just been, you know, such a god awful struggle in this state over the years. So, you know, that's important to everyone. And honestly, you know, health parity, you know, uh, access to health care. Every, everyone I talk to, the first thing they say is we have to expand Medicaid. and when I tell them my story, people tell me, it's like, okay, well, yeah, we absolutely have to take care of mental health too. Well, and when I tell people my story, the, the responses I get are so, you know, encouraging. People are just say like, wow, that's incredible. That's, that's amazing. But I think, again, that is, that is a reflection of the compassion in our community. And so with my, you know, my policies, my positions, I just think are, the, are an expansion of that to, you know, all areas. You know, caring about working people and not just worrying about how the top earners are doing and not relying on them to, uh, you know, be the indicator of how our economy is doing. We have to care about the people who are affected most by every single legislative decision. And, you know, just like the TP, this community will come together in support of other people who need help.
economic policy wise, I am strongly advocating for uh, a raise in minimum wage. I know it's politically impossible to get, you know, $15 an hour set as the state's minimum wage. I just know that can't happen. But I am shooting for $12 an hour because, again, wage earners are, I would say, the hardest working people in our state. They're the ones who are throwing out their backs and, you know, losing the cartilage in their knees who can, you know, barely walk at night. Those are the people we have to take care of. And I see my community in those people. And, and I know communities like, you know, Baldwin and Lawrence, Amy Dora, they are just like communities you know, everywhere else in the state. But um, just caring about everyone and making sure everyone gets what they need, that compassion for people, I think that is the main value I see from the district. And that's what I promise to hold, you know, close to my heart the whole time. That, that is my main goal. That is my focus. With any legislation, I'd be supporting. And one of the policies that you mentioned on your, on your page, supporting or support for the Christy L. Bennett Mental Health Parity Act. What does that act entail? So technically in Kansas, we do have mental health parity with healthcare. Um, it is it is law, but according to this one site uh, called Parity Tracker, our actual implementation of that policy is we get a D rating. And that's because even though it says health insurance policies have to cover mental health, insurance companies are really good at finding ways to deny that coverage. In Christie's case, you know, they said, well, we don't think you're suicidal because you haven't tried to commit suicide. So just tragically, that was what she had to do in order to get that treatment that she needed. And that's just horrifying. So the act basically codifies uh, certain requirements for insurance companies. For instance, if somebody needs immediate inpatient care, and there is nothing available in network in the state. Uh, the insurance company has to make available an out-of-state facility uh, within 24 hours and cover it. So that's a huge one because uh, the clinic that Christy was uh, going to go to was in Texas. She, originally, she thought it was in Kansas, but then found out that it was actually in Texas. Another requirement would be that like things like co-payments and deductibles for mental health care have to be treated the exact same as physical health care, dentistry, or you know, dental or visual, you know, eye insurance, whatever. Basically, just requiring insurance companies to actually do what we, you know, what we say they are supposed to do. Cut down on on the myriad ways they can get out of covering someone if a treatment is prescribed by a physician or, you know, a treatment professional, the insurance companies cannot deny coverage for it. So basically, as soon as a doctor says you need something, makes it impossible or, or makes it illegal for the insurance company to deny coverage for that treatment service. Okay, so it's, it's a matter of closing some of the loopholes that insurance companies have been taking advantage of in terms of not uh, fully complying with the original act. Yeah. And another policy that I wanted to discuss in part because it, it's, it has some interesting constitutional questions, and I think it is uh, somewhat of a contentious issue here in Kansas, is the your position on the Second Amendment. I guess, for, yeah, tell us what your position is on the Second Amendment and the policies that relate to. Well, my position on the Second Amendment is that it exists. 
And according to that Second Amendment, we do have the right to keep and uh, bear arms. And the Supreme Court has ruled that that includes, you know, personal possession of firearms for self-defense. People have the right to own guns in this state and this country. Personally, you know, I, I enjoy firing guns every now and then. I live just down the road from a, uh, a, sh a shooting range, a clay pigeon shooting range. You know, it's really fun to go out there uh, with my dad and shotguns and just blow up some clay pigeons. It's fun. And I, you know, I've gone to a pistol range before and, you know, that was also fun. But while I was there, I saw an AR-15 on the wall and it made my blood chill. And it made the hair on the back of my neck stand up because I never actually seen one in person before. And then you know, walk into the store and they're just you know, hung up all around the walls. I just thought, what in God's name are we doing having these weapons available to, you know, to everyday people? The AR-15, was designed for military use during the Korean War. It is a military weapon designed the sole purpose of killing as many people as possible in as short amount of time as possible. There is literally no realistic scenario in which everyday uh, citizen needs access to that kind of firepower. You think, you know, people who own these guns, they want these guns because you know, they're cool. And you look at, you know, mass shootings, especially in Las Vegas, one man with an assault rifle could just, you know, unleash absolute just rain death on a uh, crowd of people and that's just one person and us allowing people to have that weapon is just reckless and it's arrogant and just you know heartless i can't really think of any good instances where you know an ar-15 in civilian hands ended well I never heard a story about you know some guy with his assault rifle going rambo and you know saving people from Know, a terrorist squad because it doesn't happen and you know people who own those guns often you know i think they do you know harbor some of those fantasies deep down what it comes down to for me is that you know firearms are cool i mean they're they're fun and very necessary for people who feel like they need the the protection people will feel vulnerable women who have stalkers or you know walking down the street at night making sure that they feel safe and that they can defend themselves i am all for that however not just with you know assault rifles, but just in general, like constitutional carry in this state, I think is another major issue that needs to be addressed. Because as of right now, uh, at age 21, you can concealed carry a handgun without a permit. And 18, you can open carry a handgun without a permit. The fact that you can even you know, buy a gun when you're 18 is you know, looking more and more ridiculous when, you know, especially considering that, you know, just recently, you know, with everything going on, it, I feel like it was ignored a lot, but, you know, the, the tobacco age race, and it went from 18 to 21, you really didn't hear much about it. You know, it was determined that, you know, that was a good decision because, you know, young people's brains are still developing at age 18. I mean, your brain's not done growing, fully forming and becoming, you know, your adult brain until you're in your mid 20s. So if we think nicotine is a bad idea you know, to give to 18 year olds, why are guns a good idea? And then with carry on campus, I think is just a again a reckless idea you know romanticizes some vision of the wild west that is just not applicable in today's society it's just outdated and it doesn't make sense so on top of that we really need to examine 
guns role in mental health crises and suicide. Well, the suicide rate in Kansas is rising. It has been uh, and is now the second leading cause of death or third leading cause of death for people 15 to 24 and second uh, leading cause of death for kids 8 to 14. We have to be careful about who can access firearms and you know who owns them. First off, I believe in red flag laws. I believe you know, if people can tell that something is going to happen, uh, you know, the community shouldn't be able to, you know, do something about it. Going through a court system, temporarily move weapons from people who are a danger to themselves or others. I think that's common sense. Obviously, I want to, I want a reinstitution of the assault ban or assault weapons ban. Uh, in addition to that, like any of those accessories that make those weapons even deadlier. Uh, so uh, higher capacity magazines, bump stocks, all that needs to be illegal too. And then the uh, the private sale uh, background check loophole, that needs to be closed as well. We need to have universal background checks on every single purchase of firearms. It's far too easy for people who shouldn't have them to get a hold of one. And the last thing I would uh, you know support uh, would be mandatory waiting period of 72 hours for any firearm purchases complete. And that's just because, you know, people, you know, it's to make sure that people who aren't in the middle of a mental health crisis can just immediately get it, their hands on a weapon. Uh, it forces them to think about it over the next few days. And, you know, the point of it is to, you know, give them time to change their minds and, you know, rethink what they're doing. Fortunately, you know, right now you can just run in, buy a gun, just, you know, for right off the bat. And that is also reckless and dangerous. So I want to call them, you know, gun control. I'm not trying to, you know, tell people what they can and can't do with guns, but I think there's just common sense uh, solutions that, you know, I think are pretty obvious that we can enact. And, um, you know, just this morning, I earned a candidate distinction from uh, Moms Demand Action Against Gun Violence because. You know, as a person who enjoys recreational fire uh, firearm usage, I you know still wholeheartedly believe in these common sense safety measures to make sure that you know we can whittle you know we can work uh, towards ending this problem of gun violence we have in this country that only we have. You know, the Western post-industrial world, we're the only country that has you know mass shootings. And, you know, they have laws. I'm not saying you know, our laws have to be as strict as those, but you know we have to be smart and realistic with our gun laws, and we can't be in denial about the facts. Many gun owners are interpreted Second Amendment as being absolute. How do you bring them on board to your common sense gun policies uh, when they have this view of the Second Amendment as any infringement on gun ownership uh, shouldn't be allowed? Well, I think you know the best way to convince anybody of anything is to present them with present them with the tragedy that these decisions re uh, ultimately result in You're kind of like shaming them into realizing but no at the same time you know, like i don't want to shame them but i just want to i will gather the voices of you know people who have experienced loss um, because of these policies you know bring them to the forefront and force you know colleagues on the other side of the aisle you know to uh, listen to these stories at least and then have to explain to people why they don't think these common sense measures are a good idea. And I feel like the more and more we get these stories out there to people, the more and more pressure the hardcore Second Amendment supporters are going to feel to, you know, make some concessions. So in the, in the public opinion on these, you know, is strongly in favor of these laws.
I can't give you the statistics, but you know, a large majority of Americans believe in common sense gun safety measures uh, in order to minimize how many, the, the the huge number of gun deaths we have in this country. You know, the, the American people and, and Kansans want smart gun safety laws. We have to make our voices we have to make our voices heard. And I just have a few more questions for you uh, before we uh, wrap up our discussion here. What are some of the, the, the things you plan to work on your first few months? Like, what are those issues, topics that you want to address as soon as you get into office? First two topics I'm going to address would definitely be, you know, restarting the Medicaid expansion process and also enacting the Christie L. Bennett Mental Health Parity Act. I was saying earlier, I think the most immediate and effective way that we could start addressing these, you know, systemic problems and inequality is to get everyone to give everybody the, the able body and the able mind that they need to you know, compete or to be competitive in, you know, in the economy. You know, it's better for Kansas to, you know, have more people in the workforce. And the best way we can do that is to, you know, make people healthy, make people able to work. You know, nobody wants to sit around on disability. People want to, you know, have meaningful and fulfilling lives. You know, and expanding the healthcare too, you're going to free up so much money from people that they can spend on, you know, on, on consumer goods. We are a consumer goods driven economy. We rely on people spending money for growth. And if everyone is, you know, one medical emergency away from bankruptcy, they can't spend money, you know, on the extra things. They're, they're only spending money on the bare essentials. We can't grow on that. I think the sales tax on food uh, needs to be eliminated as, as fast as possible, too. The fact that we have any food sales tax is, you know, pretty disappointing, but we have one of the highest food sales tax in the country, if not the highest. And that's just another thing that we can quickly, if we changed, it would have immediate results or we would see the benefits quickly. So I think those would be the first issues that I would uh, focus on. What are some of the things, or or what do you think would be fair in terms of judging your time in office, say, when it comes time to for re-election? How do you want people to assess your time in office? I want them to assess me by by my my passion. I want people to be able to decide. I want people to see how much I care about this. Also, my responsiveness. Uh, I don't think anybody uh, should be in office unless they're, you know, willing to talk to every single one of their constituents. And I want people to see that I'm going to look at legislation to see if it benefits me because I am a wage earner. I have been, I've gone from you know, busboy to bouncer to pizza delivery driver to maintenance worker. So I've, I've done it all. I've seen it all. I want those people to decide that I was looking out for them and hopefully they judge that by my actions and hopefully my actions reflect, hopefully my actions reflect that. But if, you know, if it turns out in two years that I'm just, nobody can talk to me, no, and they don't like the policies I'm supporting, then you know, gladly invite them to vote me out of office. And if people, you know, if, if they don't think I'm acting in their best interests, I want, uh, I want people to say, you know, ask themselves, 
is what he's proposing actually going to benefit me or you know is is it just some kind of you know useless law or you know political stunt or whatever so i want people to judge me on what i get done and how hard i fight for them or and, and how well i would listen to them and if i don't meet those goals then deep down i wouldn't want to be reelected thank you thank you brandon and one more question before i let you go what are some of the things you want our listeners to take away from from our discussion today i want people to know that I've interned both in Washington, D.C. Back when Lawrence was part of the 3rd Congressional District, I interned for Congressman Dennis Moore. And then after that, more recently, I've interned for Senator David Haley out of Wyandotte County. I know the legislature, um, and I have just a a deep uh, respect and appreciation of what the legislature is. And the legislature is the power of the people to make the laws that govern them. And that's very powerful. And not not everyone in the world can say that they live in that system. I've been a dedicated Democrat since before I could even vote uh, because I believe in fairness. I believe in equality in everyone, regardless of everything. Everybody needs to be treated the same. Everybody deserves the same. And that's why I'm a Democrat, because I care about people. Now, I currently uh, work at a liquor store. So I, I'm an essential worker and I've been working pretty much full time since the shutdown began. So when a lot of people were furloughed or put on leave or teleworking, I was still going into work every day and I was still interacting with you know, on a daily basis, at least 100 people every single day. So when you know, the mask mandates went into place, I was incredibly grateful. Yeah, I, I was you know, slowly resenting all the customers who come in not wearing masks because they were, they were endangering me. So I think that's an example of me, you know, being just an average guy. I see the legislature now and I see a lot of doctors and lawyers and successful business owners. I don't see anybody who hasn't been wildly personally successful before they got into office. If I win election, I will still be, you know, a liquor store clerk. So I will always have working people's interests in mind. And when it comes to health care, especially mental health care, I want people to know that I personally firsthand have experienced how awful and how hopeless life can feel when you're struggling with mental health and you can't find treatment for it. I will do everything I can to make sure that you know nobody goes through what I did or especially what Christy Bennett went through. I will do everything I can to make sure that that never happens to a single Kansan again. Great. Well, Brandon, I want to thank you for joining me today and discussing your your campaign. Well, thank you so much for listening to me. I appreciate it. Yeah. And if you would like to know more about Brandon and his, and his campaign, you can check out his policies and everything about Brandon at his website, www brandonholland.org. That's brandonholland.org. With that, I would like to thank the Post House for being our host today and our partners at the Hall Center for the Humanities, IDRH, KU Philosophy Department, and the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. Uh, And thank you all for listening. 